Good evening. This is Cinema 60. On tonight's episode, Bart and Jenna discuss the 60s films of Michelangelo Antonioni. Good, yes, they have much more, much more. Good, that's great. Yes, that's great. That's good, that's good. Yes, go on, that again, that again, that again. Hi, Jenna. Hello, Bart. It's time for another episode of Cinema 60. And this is uh, the episode we've been waiting for pretty much since we started this whole project. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it kind of is. The uh, we're covering the '60s films of Michelangelo Antonioni, and uh, well, I won't I won't speak for you, but he's essential to why I have such a fondness for films of the '60s. He invented a lot of uh, of the modern techniques that got uh, used in in '60s films that uh, you know continue to this day you you watch his movies now and it's easy to forget how groundbreaking his techniques were at the time you know it's it's shocking that uh, that La Ventura got booed at Cannes because of the uh, the slow pace and the uh, you know, lack of a uh, strong forward moving story to watch that movie now it actually seems kind of fast paced not only are his films uh, beautiful to look at you know, with without fail. He didn't make a single movie in the 60s where you couldn't freeze it at any moment and uh, you know hang hang that image on the wall. You know he's very concerned with uh, the, the sickness of modern life and existential ideas that I really connect to. And he's uh, you know he's all about the emotional life. And when he gets a little more political, he stumbles a bit. So cause he's a very personal filmmaker and. Um, He's at his best when he's examining the emotional life of his characters. How about you, Jenna? What What is it that you uh, love about Antonioni? Well, I feel like you totally summed that up uh, in the sense that he, he's someone who can capture emotion without being melodramatic and, and honestly without being pretentious. It, he just walks that perfect line with all of his movies. He was one of these earlier directors that... As I've mentioned in previous episodes, you know, I, I started in college, I, I just was obsessively renting movies, which kind of like led me to start, you know, reviewing them because I was trying to remember them. And uh, La Ventura, it was one of the first uh, of those films. And the same, I had the same reaction of just like, it's like I didn't realize that movies could do this. <laughs> You know, like, just distill a perfect emotion, you know, even a perfect sense of, like, ennui or something. You know, there there's a great depth and, and I want to say sadness, but, like, there's a lot of joy in a lot of his films, but never wholehearted, maybe, or it's, a, it's only momentary. It's like a flash in the pan. Like, I feel like he really captures the quiet moments of life and the truth of what it, what it feels like to live. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it's really... Because you aren't, con even when you're smiling. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's, like, someone out there uh, who is a much happier human being than I am. But, like, I'm never just fully happy all the time. Like, I'll have, like, a, you know, like, maybe I'll have a couple good hours, you know, and then something happens. And I'm not saying that I'm then miserable, but, you know, you're never just, like, running on, on all cylinders ecstatic continually the way that, you know, I feel like movies can, can be. Yeah. When people are joyful or happy in his movies, it's almost accidental. 
it's like they've sort of forgotten about the weight of the world that's looming over them and they, they sort of lose themselves for a moment and, and smile or have a joke or, you know, and I, I think um, maybe it it is a real personal thing that, uh, you know, that that's that resembles our... Uh, our miserable lives. <laughs> both, of our, both of our personalities in a way that uh, I could see a lot of other people not connecting to because that's not how they are. And uh, for sure. Yeah. And I, I've I mean, I've always thought that this podcast should be more about, you know, personal responses to film. One of my biggest problems with film criticism is there's there's always this idea that I'm right and you're wrong. And uh, it's all just a matter of perspective and where you're coming from when you're looking at the movie. I'll shit on Pasolini, but I'll also say that. <laughs> Yeah, I I understand that that he's got so many admirers, and you know, it's just I'm coming from a, an Antonioni place, and other people are coming from other places. So, so if you don't like Antonioni, that's fine. But we love him, and <laughs> you're gonna have to listen to a five hour podcast. No, just kidding, but. Actually, we might have some some clashing. I'll tell you this this podcast spoiler. It's going to start out with the two of us agreeing probably 100% on everything, mostly. And then it's going to end with a fist fight. <laughs> so just, I'm just saying that there's something we're to hoping, keep you listening. We're, um, we're promising you a fist fight, and I hope we can keep that promise. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I agree with you. I mean, besides the fact that we're always correct and everyone should uh, accept that as fact, <laughs> um, maybe a mistake that people take about reviews in general is to think that they're trying to tell you how to act or what to do or what's right and what's wrong. Or that, you know, for because something was disliked that it's not worthy of, of being seen. Which isn't true. You know, there's honestly the movies that I've I've hated the most in my life are the movies that made me love other movies even more. So I have a I have a, a very strong appreciation for for hating movies. But thankfully, with all of these movies, I love all of them with maybe one asterisk, <laughs> which we'll get to. But well, even even calling that film a, a 60s film, uh, we kind of have to put an asterisk next to it. So um, it it. it you know, it maybe it's allowed because I think no one would argue that the '60s were where Antonioni was at his peak. Everything that he made in the '60s is, you know, a, a major work that that needs to be seen. I mean, he had some some good movies before this one. Il Grido's great. I like uh, uh, the Girlfriends, whatever the, the the Italian title is for that one. Like that one a lot, and he made you know after the '60s he made The Passenger, which is a masterpiece. But uh, you know, pretty much he is a '60s director, and everything of his that you absolutely need to see is, for the most part, made in the '60s. And uh, he he definitely you know has captured the feeling of the '60s in a lot of ways. I mean, when I when I think of the '60s, uh, the sort of mood and and spirit and you know, methods of Antonioni or, or that's that's my dream of the 60s you're always talking about the dream of the 60s and moping around not doing much of anything and trying to make connections with others and not being able to that's that's the 60s for me and that's uh, that's just a Saturday uh, night for me baby <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump right in I think we've gushed enough about our, our boy Michelangelo let's let's start with La Ventura from 1960 <laughs> Thank you. 
uh, booed at Khan, but then uh, given the the jury prize and uh, then went on to become an international hit. Yeah, there was a bunch of drama, right? That it was initially rejected and then a, a whole bunch of directors and, and Italian stars and, and people at Cannes had signed this letter basically saying that this is the, the greatest and most important movie that uh, we've ever seen. And, and uh, suddenly the, the tides turned <laughs> real quick. Whenever any anything comes along that's trying to change the way you watch movies, uh, it's, uh, it's not going to be greeted with open arms at first. And I think it took a bunch of smart people pointing out the fact that this movie reinvented film language that people you know, knew, the, knew the right way to approach this thing and, uh, and, and began to appreciate it. You, you said he's, you know, his, his movies are about you know, relationships and emotions, but they're not melodramas. And in a way, they are, but only if you take like one small subplot you know, that in a normal melodrama might take up you know, 15 minutes of screen time and you stretch it out for an entire feature film and watch the characters and how they interact with each other and how they're feeling as they interact with each other. It's This is the beginning of slow cinema here. I mean, it's funny, the, it, just to hear you even describe sort of even around this film, in a way you've already described the plot of the film. But um, I also, uh, just for, for those who have not seen La Ventura, Claudia and Anna, who um, are two friends, which is uh, Claudia is Monica Vitti, and uh, Anna is played by uh, Leah Masari. And they are going on a boat trip with uh, Sandro, who is um, Gabriele Frizzetti. And he is dating uh, Anna. And Anna's already kind of over it. They have this weird, you know, sort of dispassionate love scene in the beginning. And then they hop on a boat. And they have some brief um, arguments, but they're very, I mean, like, they're really pretty mellow. And uh, then Anna just disappears. They're they're on this island. They're they're down in Sicily, and uh, everyone's on this boat tour, and and uh, she's just gone. And so that's kind of the, that's that's the plot. Even though I feel like with all of these movies, to run down the plot, you you're not telling anything about what the movie's actually about. Um, but mm-hmm. it it is that is what sort of is going to frame everything else. Yeah, and um, you know the rest of the movie is a search for for Anna, Claudia, and, and Sandra sort of uh, join forces to try and figure out what may have happened to her. And you know, with lack of any uh, clues as as to what may have happened, and also an acknowledgement of the fact that Anna really wanted to disappear. If she killed herself, or if she just got on a boat and and uh, you know headed off in another direction. The fact is she didn't want to be found, so you know there's sort of this this sort of futility to their whole search anyway, and they sort of get distracted by uh, by other things and with each other. And, and there's a scene where where they they realize that that Anna's gone missing and she's not coming back, and, and they're not sure how or when or if she's alive or not. And you see Monica Vitti crying. It's like this great moment where it doesn't feel completely sincere. And then like Sandro seems pretty tranquil throughout the entire thing. He doesn't seem that upset. So there's this weird already emotional disconnect between all of these characters, you know, starting with this weird um, relationship with with Anna and Sandro. Uh, And then, I don't know, she tells weird little lies about like seeing a shark and stuff like that. And 
everyone seems to be insecure in some way, either that they are, they're sort of already walking on insecure land and then, and then they're on this really volcanic rocks and, you know, everything kind of starts to fall apart. So La Ventura to me is, is not my favorite Antonioni. Like I, but I, I love it, (laughs) but I would love to know. I would love to know what, what your take is on it. And like what what you're what you love about it? Oh well, it is my favorite, um, only because I've seen it more often than any of the others, and it's I'm familiar with the beats and and you know can remember every minor character in it, and it just you know it's worked its way into my subconscious. I mean, it's it's really you know a lot of it we addressed in our introduction but it's you know you you're you're presented with Claudia Monica Vitti who is the uh, perfect stand-in for me in any movie she's ever been in like you know every everything that uh, you know i can see every emotion cross her face and can can relate 100% and she's uh, you know she she always plays kind of the the observer in all of these movies. She, she, and I, I mean, this movie made Monica Vitti a star and, uh, she and Antonioni, you know, had a relationship and she became, you know, his, his muse, I suppose, and was in, you know, his next three movies after this. And, um, so in a way it's, she also became the patron saint of cinema 60. It's true. She's, she's on our, uh, our banner. Um, this movie begins with her, you know she's hobnobbing with the with the the rich and powerful um she's not one of them but there's as the movie progresses she sort of becomes more and more entrenched in this world and and there's there's this sort of idea that um that Anna has disappeared so that her best friend Claudia could just take her place in the world this time through and I think maybe I've noticed it you know hints of it before but this time through I I definitely picked up on kind of a uh, a suggestion of incest between Anna and her father. Really? You know, the, the be- <laughs> at the beginning, when you when you first meet her father, you know he he talks about how lonely he is. Like they're they're her mother is you know dead. You know Anna has kind of been her mother's substitute in her father's life, and and uh, you know he wants to bring up some truth that Anna is not willing to discuss. And thinking about that as as a fact really sort of colored how I interpreted Anna's behavior. It's like, you know, there's this big awful thing in her life that no matter how hard she tries, she can't ever really distract herself from. But it doesn't matter, incest or no incest. She's a she's a, a rich girl with all the advantages in life who just can't find any pleasure in them or in any relationship. She wants to be by herself. She, uh, you know, likes the idea of a relationship, but, you know, as soon as she's in one she doesn't want to be in one anymore yeah there's definitely there's a lot of of broken people in this and i mean one of the things that uh, that antonioni says about how he makes movies is that he he makes um he is trying to distill emotions more than he's trying to tell uh you know a sort of linear plot and for me la ventura just feels like emotions it's like a disconnect and all of their these relationships and friendships the uh, only one that feels the, the most sincere to me was between anna and claudia but even then you know it doesn't feel like it's as matched between you know i don't know that if claudia went missing that that anna would be so upset 
Uh, and even then, you know, the second that Sandra starts to move in on Claudia, she's sort of, I mean, like she momentarily is like, yo, man, like some, some man, a person's died here, you know, like, <laughs> but in, but she kind of, you know, very quickly accepts um, his advances, even though he then, you know, it just starts to, I don't know, he starts making out with a bunch of people and, and uh, you know, she just kind of accepts it. And their relationship, I mean, the fact that they're even trying to start a relationship based on the, the death of a friend or at least the disappearance of a sinister disappearance, uh, you know, it's like a relationship already being built on on guilt and, and depression. And, you know, the the only emotion they seem to show is when they're embarrassing themselves in the end of the film to, to skip all the way to the end. But when you have Sandra crying on that bench because he, he's messed up or maybe he's finally feeling on his disappearance, but... You don't get a sense of empathy so much. It's just more of just like the the tears for their own, you know, failures or their own desires and their own and sympathy for themselves than it is any kind of real human uh, connection. Yeah, I mean, I don't. These movies are about emotion, but there isn't a whole lot of emotion on display. You see, you know, lots of attempts at emotions and making connections and people trying to feel something and not succeeding. And, I mean, not even, you know, Sandro, Gabriela Frasetti is, is, is a real dud. I, I don't see, like, what, what his appeal would be to anybody. And I, I sort of feel like Claudia, you know, s somehow feels like, oh, if I'm going to take over for Anna, I'm going to have to, like, I'm going to have to figure out what she saw in, the, in this guy, Sandro. Like, there, I, I never feel like they have much of a of a connection. I mean, there's sort of a, you know, a raw physical thing that sort of uh, makes an appearance once or twice in the movie, but you, know, you never feel any particularly strong emotional connection between the two of them. Well, he has that quote he says to her, which I feel like sums up their, their whole relationship is where he, he says to her, I've never met a woman who needs to be told things so clearly like you do. <laughs> and this is after he's saying all these words of love that he was saying to Anna that Anna said, to Claudia that he said, you know, and, and now here she is experiencing the same thing sort of in Anna's place and, uh, and, and seeing how insincere it is. Yeah. I mean, a lot is made of how Antonioni frames his characters in the, in the background, you know, within the, the backgrounds. And like when, when there's this first connection between Claudia and Sandro, you see the crashing waves, you know, in the background and the, on the island, and I don't know, if you read a lot of about Antonioni, people will talk about things like the objective correlative and, and, you know, just these sort of things that are associated with different people that he will, will, he'll show, like, behind the character, you know, weighing on them, and, you know, Sandro is a, is a failed architect. He, he still wants to be, like, build beautiful things, but he just can't, you know, find it within himself to really get going in that direction and he's always sort of framed with these like beautiful pieces of architecture behind him and uh you know i never feel like those crashing waves or the the this beautiful architecture behind sandro is the emotion there is is uh is reflected in the character the way that that a lot of people will, will discuss these movies you know antonioni's technique i feel like that you know the, these framings are sort of laughing at the characters like the crashing waves are showing this like passion that should you know signal romance but his characters are really sort of cold and and won't you know act 
you know, in an honest way towards each other. And, and you know, the, the architecture in the background of, of behind Sandra was just sort of laughing at the fact that, oh, yeah, you think this is what you want to do, but really, like, there's no way you're ever going to get it together and, and actually make buildings. I completely agree. <laughs> I actually, I get a little annoyed when I feel like all you hear about uh, Antonioni's movies it is just framing like uh, every every time I look up reviews the vast majority of them end up being stuff and I'm totally gonna because we have to I'm gonna tell I'm gonna ask you what you think that final shot is of her standing him sitting him with the brick wall next to him and her with the volcano next to her in the, in the distance is you know I feel like I've, I've read so many analysis of, of like uh, analyses of, of why this final shot is everything and explains the entire <laughs> film. And I'm, I don't, I like, I don't think it does. I mean, like it explains the moment in time, but I agree with you. I don't think that it's about framing to tell you anything other than just more contradictions or, or more of a, a, an emotion that's being evoked by um, lofty architecture than it is about his, his ideals and, and his purpose. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I see it as more of a joke on, on Antonioni's part. And whether that's his intention or not, that's how it plays for me. He's equating Sandra with a blank brick wall and Monica Vitti is a, is, you know, is a dormant volcano. And it's just sort of like, in this moment in time, this is my observation about these people, but he's not, it's not taking the place of emotion or, you know, trying to tell us anything about these characters that we don't already know from their behavior. I just think it's, it's a fun and beautiful technique of, of Antonioni's that, that isn't any more than just sort of, you know, visual punnery more than anything. See, now it's funny because I, I feel like, yeah, there, there's a lot of, you know, talk of the, the key to, to Antonioni's movies. And I feel like there is, there's no key except for La Note. came out and I feel like this one to me I love I think I like more than La Ventura it's also I think his most Hollywood movie of the 60s yeah kind of resembles a relationship drama that that might be made in Hollywood more than you know anything else he's made and obviously like so little actually happens in this movie that it's kind of funny to say that it resembles a, a Hollywood melodrama the most of any of his movies, but it's about a wealthy couple in Milan. Marcello Mastriani is uh, Giovanni, and he's uh, just written his first novel, and it's uh, been very well received, but he, uh, he doesn't have any more books in him, and he's just sort of wandering around not knowing to, what to do with himself, and uh, Jeanne Moreau is uh, his wife, and she sort of plays the observer role in this movie, uh, as opposed to Monica Vitti. She uh, I mean, Monica Vitti is in this movie in a smaller role, but but real, really seeing everything that's happening in this movie through Lydia's eyes, played by Jean Moreau. They go to a, a, a big party with a bunch of wealthy people and their sexual shenanigans, and it. Uh, I don't like this one more than La Ventura, and I think part of it is just that, that it's sort of, is just a, um, 
a, a floundering marriage and these two trying to reconnect and uh, you know doesn't there's not enough mystery to it or something there's you know they both try and have affairs and don't succeed and and uh, have a a grudging reconciliation at the end and it's I mean I love this movie there's so much in it that's that's you know fantastic but uh, it doesn't rank at the top of, of the Antonioni's for me why why do you like it so much I think part of I, I mean I it's just there's so much there's so much layers of observation and also just breaking down of these types of characters which to me I mean it's also very clearly is inspired by La Dolce Vita. But what I liked about it was just that you have, I mean, you have these three characters. It's almost like a, a triptych. Three different parts of the the same portrait or the same mirror looking at something. You have Marcello as, as this sort of vapid intellectual who can't see or feel anything for himself unless it's through the eyes of another Number one, it starts off with this friend dying in, in a hospital. And very clearly, Lydia has a stronger friendship with him than Giovanni does. But this guy's singing all these praises for Giovanni as an author. And he's saying, you know, you're everything to me. Like, and this is also another fellow author. And, and you almost even wonder if, you know, it, well... You wonder if, if maybe like there's something had taken, you know, happened between Lydia, which you find out later that something had uh, and and their dying friend. Tommaso. Bernard Vicky. And so, you know, it, it, it's she's already suffering from this, the grief of knowing that he's dying. And, and his last words are essentially, you're both the most important people in my life. Like, I didn't want to talk to anyone else but you. <laughs> and then, um, you know, she has to leave because she's going to cry. And then Marcello leaves and this like you know crazy woman in the next uh hospital bed over pulls him into the room and then starts to perform oral sex on him or at least it's sort of simulated and implied and he's totally chill with it you know you know (laughs) then the nurses kind of walk in on on them when they're about to get it on only then does he feel guilty because he got caught you know he's just totally selfish and only seems to be interested when in in himself when other people give him that confirmation so the end when when sort of um Lydia finally tries to reconnect with him after this whole night of, you know, these events taking place and things changing. And Lydia has been trying to take him. She takes him to the this like weird strip club where um, this this woman is dancing with a wine glass and she doesn't spill it. And it's like kind of contortionist. And, uh, you know, Marcello is like totally like whatever. He doesn't even he doesn't seem to care. He's not like interested in talking to his wife. He's not interested in like, you know, so it's like Lydia's making all this effort uh and and she's just not he's not giving her anything back and it's only until she reads his own words back to him that he then falls in love with her you know it's just like like that's awful <laughs> yeah i do really like how when when he pretty willingly goes into the nymphomaniac's room to have sex with her like he's just responding it's it's you know sex with no responsibility and he he doesn't you know wh- how, why is he going to say no to that and he can't really like assess his own feelings about that incident i mean it's not it's not even that he got caught it's like he goes you know when he goes and meets up with lydia again he tells her about it saying oh a horrible thing happened to me and i think you know it's it's almost like he doesn't know how to process what happened until it's it's sort of filtered through her and she's she is sort of his sounding board and that's 
sort of been her function, you know, throughout their relationship. And I think that's what she's a bit tired of. She's sort of become second banana to him. He's the published author. She may or may not have been going places. It suggested that she, she was a writer herself. So when Giovanni tells Lydia about his experience with the, with the nymphomaniac, he wants her to get jealous. He wants to know how, what the proper emotional response to this incident is. And he blames the girl. He says, well, she, you know, she's forced herself on me too, which is like, (laughs) (laughs) it's just like he sort of frames himself as, as being, um, you know, the total innocent in this when like this girl is clearly, you know, sick (laughs) and he has plenty of opportunities to walk away or, and which he had earlier in, in the, in the scene, then you have Lydia who who's dealing with her grief and it's the grief of like the world. It's like the grief of her friend who then later dies throughout the night. Uh, she finds out when she tries to call the hospital back um, when they're at this like really weird party, which, which is so the whole, the setting is so sinister and the whole party is sinister. I love when they're walking up. It's like dead quiet. It's this like sprawling villa that you never really get a sense of how big it is because it's so large and it's so dark. And it's so it feels sort of like never ending. And it's this mixture of like modern uh, architecture with old world frescoes. And, and I love they walk up and he's like, you know, oh, did, is everyone dead? Like, because it's like just totally everyone's actually like out in the back. But basically that Lydia, you know, she's dealing with this this grief of, you know, the death of her friend and she's the grief of her life choices. She has this grief about how how little she's been respected and how, how little she's respected herself. I feel like this is something that uh, Antonioni in general does so well, and that which is part of why I love him so much. And Monica Vitti, who typically is in this role and 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 just always nails it, is but you know he he really understands that like uh, you know being being a woman in a man's world, he knows how to just get that like capture the all of the emotions that go with that, and it's typically like a sort of a dead end acceptance with a, a dull recognition that this isn't right, but it's like this almost resigned, uh, accepted misery, like, like a base level misery that just always continues. Yeah, well, it's like women are defined by their relationships, but in this modern world where nobody can have a good relationship, a, a strong emotional bond with anybody else, like where where is a woman's place now if, if you know... <laughs> But it's also, you know, it's it's he's very universal about it. I think he uses a woman's perspective as a more natural way into discussing emotions. But it's, you know, he's talking about all of us, and he's, you know, and his and everything is so existential for him. Death is hanging over every one of his movies. You know, in La Ventura, it's Anna's death, you know, disappearance anyway. And this one is the actual death of a good friend, Tommaso. And, and this looming death is, colors everything that happens in these movies. And everybody is constantly saying like, well, we're all going to die anyway. So what does it all mean? Have I had a successful life? Have I done what I'm supposed to do with this limited amount of time that we're we're on this earth what 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 actually are we supposed to do with our time it sounds very pretentious but he's sort of subtle about it i mean the way he it's always kind of sort of glancingly referred to this sort of hopelessness and you see it you know you see it in the performances more than anything else than any you know particular dialogue that that says oh what's the meaning of life it's you know there's there's no hope there's you don't get any of that and that's you know, and I think that would really like tip tip these things over into you know serious pretentiousness. But it's it's 
um, it's definitely always there, this this looming death. I, I totally, 100, you, you nailed it. I, I totally agree. And I also think for sure that it's not meant to be solely female for perspective, but I have to say that to see something like an existential crisis that is so universal coming out of a female character is just like, you don't get this level of depth for women in the 60s a lot. And you still don't even get this level of depth for women at like half the time. So to me, it was like, I think like Monica Vitti, especially in, in all of these Antonioni movies, is, is just like the most relatable character <laughs> of, uh, you know, that I can point to in, in cinema as being like, like someone I can at least see parts of myself in, if not like my whole self sometimes, uh, which is so refreshing. For for me personally, I typically end up more relating to, to male characters than I do female. And, it, and it's like, it's a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I agree. I don't know what it says about me, but I really, you know, Monica Vitti is, I, I relate to her more than, you know, anyone else I can think of. And um, except in this movie, La Notte, she, she just, you know, she's fine in it. She's good. She plays Gamine, who's, who's there to, to tempt Marcello Mastriani, the, the poor little rich girl who, uh, who's, who's bored and, and doesn't know what to do with herself. So she just sort of shows up and you know plays games with uh, with Giovanni there, I mean sure there's there's a, a sexual interest in on his part but more he's sort of testing himself in a way he's he's saying okay let's see what happens when I you know interact with this um, you know this bored pretty rich girl and and uh, you know maybe maybe something meaningful will will result in a way she's sort of a little miscast in this movie just because she doesn't have to show much depth in this role. Oh my God, she shows so much depth in this role. I love her in this movie. Because that's the thing. It's like where she represents this radiant potential. She's the only one who's like completely self-confident and knows exactly what she wants. What does she want? <laughs> I think that there's a degree of her just being at peace with herself, which is something that no one else in the, in the entire movie has. Whereas Lydia's mourning sort of the loss of her her own self-confidence and then the true love that the potential that she could have had with Tommaso that she rejected for Marcello. Whereas Monica Vitti is intelligent. She's beautiful. She, she's, uh, she's self-assured and she's like making art for herself, which is something that I think is also ties into this because Giovanni isn't Giovanni's writing for other people. And I think that you find this in general with artists is that, I mean, there's a lot of camps, but like the two camps are people that are, are content with making art for themselves alone in their room and and that's all they really needed and whether or not it gets out into the world and gets recognized is like besides the point because what they needed to do was sit down and create art whereas you know then there's the other people that need to be heard and, and seen in order to be to exist and that in Marcello is someone you know who needs to be seen in order to exist the same way that he needs to have someone else tell him what to do or what he is for him to then can sort of conform to it. And I think that I don't even remember her name in it, but Monica Valentina, Va Valentina, that that her whole point of you know being here is basically just to to show them both you know what they what they can't have. I mean, I love that she's not interested in breaking up their marriage. She really couldn't care less about him. She's content to do things for herself and live for herself without having to bask in, in admiration. But, you know, if it comes to her, she's not going to reject it. She's sort of interested in him until she realizes he's married. 
And and I also love, there's a line that she says, whenever I try to communicate, love disappears, which is like, number one, story of my life. <laughs> but number two, just like this someone who's so confident and so radiant and so, and so fantastic. And of course, this is the person that society sort of rejects, you know? She's the person who kind of, she has to be this because she's not getting anything from other people. People don't understand her because she doesn't need them. And this is, goes back to that La Dolce Vita thing. It's like self-promotional phony bullshit from, you know, these guys clapping each other on the back. And here you have someone who's just like fantastic and she's sitting in a room like talking to herself <laughs> and recording it. And that she's like, ah, fine. That's, you know, it's a living. <laughs> mm. See, I, I see what you're saying about her, but she also, you know, just comes off as a bored socialite in a lot of ways. Well, I think that the fact that she's rich is probably part of why she can even be the person that she is. So I would justify it in that way. But that doesn't mean that she isn't just a bored socialite. <laughs> <laughs> well, then next we move to Rome from Milan. I could argue that Leclise, the third of, of the movies in, uh, in Antonioni's Alienation Trilogy. Uh, I don't know if that's his what he calls it, but... Uh, he definitely uh, you know, refers to these first three movies of his in the 60s as, uh, as being one of a piece about the uh, malady of emotional life in modern times. But uh, I could argue that Leclise is, is Antonioni's best movie. agree this is my absolute favorite Antonioni movie <laughs> I love this movie so much and nothing happens in this movie <laughs> <laughs> but it's fascinating it's so rich nothing happens and yet so much happens that every scene every little event every inconsequential moment in this is just full of things to look at and to think about don't don't start with like Clise, but you, you may find that it's it's your favorite Antonioni movie if you want me to like sell you on it cold, it has Monica Vitti, who's like a drop dead stone cold fox. And then you have Alain Delon, who in his complete prime, the most beautiful man who's ever walked the earth between like 1960 and, <laughs> you know, 1969, basically. Yeah. If there's, if there's anyone more beautiful than Monica Vitti, it's Alan Delon in this movie. Yes. 100%. <laughs> so you get to see two incredibly hot, like painfully hot people wander around and, and stare off into the distance and make out a little bit. So like, <laughs> if that doesn't sell you on this movie, I don't know what would, but um, to me, this movie, it's just a near perfect, if not a perfect film. So it's like, hard for me even to objectively understand why someone wouldn't like it. <laughs> well, briefly, this, the movie begins with uh, Vittoria played by Monica Vitti breaking up with her fairly long-term boyfriend, Ricardo. After she ends this relationship, she really doesn't know what to do with herself. So the rest of the movie is her you know, trying to talk to her mother about it, let her know what's happening with her and, and not being able to because her mother is addicted to gambling and, and, and the stock exchange. 
She, you know, has a little flirtation with Piero, Alan Delon, who is uh, her mother's agent, who spends a good chunk of the film shouting uh, to be heard over a bunch of other stockbrokers. You know, it, it's she's just sort of trying to distract herself from the pain of a broken relationship and, and you know, doesn't want to get too serious with, with Piero, especially not right away, just because she's come off this long relationship. And he's kind of a jerk. He's Mr. Wall Street. yeah. He's the very definition of big dick energy in this movie. He's, he's this guy who's just got so much easy confidence. He's like, isn't worried about missed opportunities because he knows that, you know, another one is going to come right along. And he's just, his his casualness is, is also a big part of his appeal. But yeah, he's nobody you'd want as a boyfriend. And and again, as, as all of these movies are, uh, events sort of happen around them that start to color and, and change their perspective of each other, but not in big ways, in very subtle and, and strange little ways. It's sort of like the the butterfly flapping its wings that changes the one second. You know, it's like that. It's very much about these like small, tiny moments. I mean, to me, and part of why I love this movie so, so much, uh, again, it's just that Monica Vitti, I think she's just like the most relatable character um ever but um there's like that famous john berger quote if you know him there's british um novelist and and art critic and he did this uh, bbc series the ways of seeing um and he he wrote books and stuff and there's this this quote that that gets quoted a lot basically says that um quote men act and women appear men look at women and women watch themselves being looked at and to me, now you have essentially that's it's that concept, but it's it's been being taken even broader and broader and broader and also down to being as specific as um, Victoria as a character, Victoria as a woman, Victoria as someone in modern society and then modern society within our world. There's so much to this. And to me, what's so fascinating really is the, is the human is this this relationship that is is happening within all of this. Which is something, again, that I think that, you know, a lot of criticism and, and write-ups of, of Antonioni movies that I've read, I feel like they sleep on the most interesting parts of the movies because they get so caught up in that sort of the, those themes of modern isolation and the framing and uh, like, oh, what happens when, you know, like this one scene happens and this explains everything. And like, I think they're sort of losing the the, the forest for the trees with that. Uh, and I think that really what makes Laclise so so fantastic is that you have it's Victoria caught between how the world views her, how she views herself and how she views the world viewing her. It's just every part of, of being a human being. And then and then on top of it, you have her wanting to break free from the structure of, of modern life and wanting to get to this, something that's more primal and, and more natural and passionate and truthful, which is something that she clearly wasn't getting from her last relationship and clearly what attracts her to uh, Piero because he's this animalistic, like he's just yelling all the time. Uh, you know, he's, he's gorgeously masculine, um, and he takes what he wants and he, and he gets it, you know, and, and that's like, it, she's caught between the, and then, but she's also knows he's a jerk, you know, like she's not, this isn't really the person that she wants to be with, but he's, he's embodying something that she's desperately, uh, searching for in her life that she's not getting, which, you know, also happened, comes up with the one unfortunate scene is there's this big, uh, blackface dance number that Monica Vitti ends up doing with her friends, 
Uh, and this woman who lives across the way, who's from uh, Africa, she's like British colonial, and she says a whole bunch of racist shit, but her whole apartment's full of, you know, photos of, of Africa and masks and spears and jewelry and all of these things, the whole, all this paraphernalia. And um, there's this moment where sort of, uh, you know, um, Victoria imagines herself sort of as this um, complete caricature uh, blackface dance number that she does. And it sucks because on one hand, it's just, it, it's so Italian. <laughs> it's so 1960s Italian. And on the other hand, like I completely understand what what they were trying to go for. And also I, I almost like, I find it unforgivable. And I also think that like, it totally captures exactly what this character, like it totally captures this character in this moment, in this place and time. But then in that way, it take it, it dates the whole movie because it's, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. just obnoxious. From a current perspective, it's it's pretty indefensible. The only thing that I can say to defend it is that there is some analysis within the movie of what what the point of that was. And, you know, even Marta, the the uh, the friend who is who lives in Africa, is the one who who stops this uh, sort of grotesque. But um, yeah, and then she starts saying about how they're all monkeys and and uh, Africa's her home and not theirs. Yeah, and I mean when she when she calls Africans, except for the uh, you know ten or twelve who've who've gone off to Oxford, and when she calls the rest uh, monkeys and trees, it's uh, it's a shocking moment. And, and I think even at the time, you're meant to think that it's a horrible thing for for this for her to say, and it's such a colonialist attitude. But it also speaks to this. This dichotomy that's in all of Antonioni's films is that, you know, we're we're in this civilized society where you know we have to be so careful about how we interact with each other and everything. You know, it's you know, having honest emotion in, in in modern society is impossible. And and he sort of talks about this yearning for this you know the simplicity of a more uh, primitive style of behavior where people want to have sex, they just have sex, and if people want to you know spend time together, they do. And it's uh, you know, just this sort of uncomplicated ideal that Antonioni presents as, you know, well, this is your alternative, and is this much better? It's funny, and also it's predicting, like, the the end of the 60s in a lot of ways. Like you were saying, it's like the zeitgeist of, of everyone then goes in the opposite direction of being completely open and, and you know, quote, regressing. But I, I feel like it's also shown as just as naive that this is a fantasy for her, that she's, you know, that she's in blackface, that this isn't anything based on reality. Like, I mean, I want to give him credit for that. Like, and, and maybe that wasn't his intention, but I do I do feel like there's room for the interpretation. Well, her, and, her skin is completely darkened. Like, it's a perfect makeup job where, like, every inch of her is covered in dark makeup. And then in the, in the next scene, she's like, it's completely gone. Like, right. we're definitely in some sort of, like fantasy here when she's doing her her African tribal dance, and uh, I don't, and that's that's also not uh, not any kind of defense of the of the scene, but uh, it's 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 complicated. It's it's not it's not a minstrel show just there for our entertainment. It's it's trying to make some commentary, but it just does it in sort of a careless, callous way that that really doesn't play well to a current audience. Yeah, which which sucks because it's the biggest blemish, and it's a, that's a big blemish on on an otherwise like perfect film. Then I I love her romance with Piero, which I think also it continues to sort of theme of this disconnect and how you know there, there's a famous scene of her kissing him through the glass door. Mm-hmm. He keeps trying to you know take her, 
and she keeps demurring and, and not she's she's there she keeps coming she keeps showing up but she won't accept you know his advances completely but what she will do is is sort of put a, a glass cabinet door between the two of them and, and kiss him through the glass there's a metaphor yeah <laughs> <laughs> That scene of them going a- a- across the crosswalk and, uh, you know, he says, when we're going to get to the other side, I'm going to kiss you. It's like, I don't know. It's all these weird little like moments of destiny. It's like exactly what she's looking for is someone who says, when you get to from A to B, this is going to happen. You know, it's like giving definitive structure to the situation, which is what she seems to want as much as she doesn't want it. Well, that is the problem with modern life, though. You know, uh, with wealth and leisure, there's this sense that now our, our life has no structure. We sort of yearn for a time where, where our life is mapped out for us, where we have a career and we, we follow that career path and we do this and then we do that and we do that and we get married at 24 and we have three children and, and you know, everything is, is mapped out for you. And she's modern enough to know that that's not what she wants, but all she really wants is a path, is someone to tell her what to do. And it's, it's the push and pull of that that really, I, I think her character is always speak to me for that reason well so how how about that ending man i feel like this is something also that has to be discussed because it gets discussed in absolutely every time (laughs) someone mentions this movie but to me i felt like the the, this time watching this again i've watched this movie a couple of times uh but for me this time i think it really i don't know it really clicked for me that that it was essentially it's Antonioni just standing up the entire audience the way that these two are both stand each other up, that you, you get the sense that, that, you know, they both say, I'll see you later, and you get the sense neither of them show up, and they both kind of know, like, ah, this isn't worth my time. Well, so to, I mean, we should we should say what the ending is. Oh, it's just, you know, it's just uh, shots of, of places that we've seen in the movie, the corner that they sort of would meet up on, but no one's there. None of the main characters are there. It's just empty. And it goes on for a solid five minutes of just empty streets and totally random people. There's even one time where you think the woman's Monica Vitti and she turns around and it's a different face. It's a different woman. Then you see the sun go down and then you see the the streetlights go on and this very ominous chord happens and it says the end. Fine. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, our two main characters have promise that they'll love each other forever and they'll see each other every day and um so you're waiting for them to meet up at their at their meetup spot which is just this sort of building under construction that feels like it might be out in the country somewhere it's like dead suburbia yeah yeah i mean so for the last five minutes of the movie you're waiting for them to show up like they said they're going to and neither one of them it's not you know it's it's not that one of them shows up and the other one doesn't it's they both know that there's no real point to them continuing even though they've they've said they'd be together forever and it's and it goes right back to what you said about his sense of humor Antonioni's sense of humor because to me this is this is Antonioni watching you watching him watching you waiting for his gaze his you know direction to define you in this moment as you anticipate the ending that would make you feel good and 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 you know what? You're you're pathetic for it. <laughs> it's totally a joke. It's for like how oh like you you are now sitting in a theater for five minutes watching nothing, literally nothing, like not even like a character that you know doing nothing. You're literally seeing absolutely nothing, a montage of nothingness, and then it just ends. Beautifully it was, shot nothingness. 
Oh, of course. But it's and it's brilliant. It's it's just like, you know, and also it totally captures what it feels like to be stood up, quite frankly, which <laughs> which sucks, by the way. But yeah, and it does. You see a newspaper, somebody who walks by is holding a newspaper that says, uh, you know, just something about how, yeah, we're all going to die in, in nuclear war. And there is sort of the emptiness of the of the of these, you know, this these series of shots that we see just sort of feel like the the end of the world it's like this you know the city but but nobody's left alive in it which brings us right into red desert is 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 definitely very linked to the this alienation trilogy but it's it's different enough uh i it's again it's monica vitti it's antonioni's first color film and this one's set in ravenna in industrial ravenna i feel like monica vitti's character in this she's her character from the previous films only finally accepting that there is no hope and, and sort of driving herself crazy and, and just seeing no, no point to life. And she, you know, has, has attempted suicide and um, has been in a hospital for a while and uh, is, you know, in theory recovered, but she still has moments where she's clearly not in her right mind. She kind of feels like she has a traumatic brain injury or something. Yeah, well, that's what modern life does to you. <laughs> True. Richard Harris plays Corrado, and uh, he he comes to town, a consultant for her husband who works in one of the factories there. He's trying to figure out the cheapest way to move a bunch of equipment from Ravenna to South America somewhere. And um, just seeing Giuliano once, Monica Vitti, who's come to visit her husband at the factory, just seeing her once, he's he's immediately smitten with her and, and kind of wants to have some kind of relationship or just spend more time with her anyway. And yeah, I mean, there's again, it's a it's a wisp of a plot, but uh, but Antonioni does a whole lot with it. What's really interesting to me about this, before we get into the movie, even this was, as you said, his first color film, and he actually went and, and spray painted the landscape in certain places to get it to look the way that he envisioned it. When he was shooting in black and white, it was much easier for him to sort of, you know, number one, wash out the landscape to misery, uh, and number two, to set tones and, and to have more control over just the, the look of it, I guess, and is for his, in his opinion. And then when it came to his first color film, he, he literally went out and was spray painting grass. Apples. I love the card of apples, the gray apples. Yes. I mean, and everything, everything in this movie is so industrial and it's so gray until it has hints of, of color. And, and the only way I can describe this movie is something that like, now, number one, I'll say I watch this also like I've watched, I watched all these movies like, like over 10 years ago was, was the first time I saw them. 
when I saw this the first time, I kind of was like, ah, this is a bit of a dud. <laughs> My memory of this was that like there was no dialogue and that it was a lot of standing around and staring off into the distance and, and didn't really have any plot whatsoever, not even not even the wisp of a plot that it does have. And watching it now, number one, I was completely wrong. Uh, it's a great movie. It doesn't beat the the previous three for me, but it's fantastic. And, and the visuals very clearly inspired probably the a whole genre of sci-fi that, that I adore. I mean, like, if you liked anything by Tarkovsky, I feel like Red Desert is... You even could have told me that he had made this movie, and I would, I would even believe you because it's just industrial porn. <laughs> and then on, this, on top of it, it actually, the whole thing looks like, it looks like modern art of 1964 it looks very abstract it looks like it looks like Rothko which is something that I wish that I had come up with but I actually found this um this article ages ago from a website called not critical not dash critical.com and I got to give him a shout out John Beasley if you're still around I love your article about how Red Desert is essentially a Rothko painting come to life because I think that's that's exactly it. And it ties right into the whole distilling an emotion, which is what I think a lot of that that art is. You know, it's it's you look at three colors on a wash on a wall and suddenly you're, you're feeling something or not. But that's to me was the key of Red Desert, even though I think there's actually I have a whole hot take at the end of this movie. But what, how do you feel about it? I, I, I love it. It's um, you know one definitely one of the most beautiful looking films ever made. And it's just I just get so caught up in the visuals that, you know, I'm, I'm sort of swept away. But there, I think there are a lot of really memorable individual scenes in this one like when they go to the the worker's house and the and his wife is there and and you know serves them wine and it's uh you know she's clearly like suffering from similar maladies mental mental illnesses that uh that juliana is suffering from and uh you know in the in the in the red shack the, the sort of yeah, like orgy with the, with the, <laughs> the, the, the the quail eggs that are aphrodisiacs and you know these middle-aged people all like trying to have sex with each other but not being brave enough but still being really randy. I do think that it goes on a bit long. I think watching this, you know, right after watching the first 3 Antonioni movies, it's sort of never felt like this way to me before, but the whole seduction scene at the end where Juliana goes to Corrado and and says, "Okay, we can we can have an affair." But it takes so long for that that seduction to happen, them to actually get into bed, and I I got a little impatient towards the end of this. But you know, otherwise, I think it's right up there with the with the rest of them. I I I, I like it as much as I like La Note anyway. Agreed that there's a lot of really memorable and and interesting and sort of disturbing scenes in this, like. Like that that weird sex den. I mean, the the colors of that are fantastic. It's like this dilapidated shack that, that everything in it is gray and decomposing. To see four people sitting on a bed in this bright red, tiny little den, you know, it's just it, it's it's so weird. It's so it's so interesting. Which climaxes with them busting apart the shack for firewood and like you know, you know, sublimating all of this like failed sexual energy into like just destroying a wall. And it's it's really pretty cathartic, and it's you know one of my favorite scenes in in an Antonioni movie. Right, and then and then you have this like these massive 
ships outside because they're basically directly on the dock and in the background like that they're the, the flag goes up and there's like an infectious disease on the ship <laughs> i part of me doesn't really even want to analyze red desert because i just i just sort of enjoy it kind of as what it is i mean like there's a scene where she's they're spinning this gyroscope for her young son and you know i kind of feel like that's just that's her <laughs> you know it's something spinning one way internally and something spinning the other way externally and it looks like it's gonna fall and teeter over continually and it never does she tries to kill herself and then she backs away and she tries and she backs away and and you know she's had this tremendous shock as they say i don't know and then and like that robot in the kids room it just like goes back and forth and looks terrifying i love that thing (laughs) yeah the oddest thing about this movie is that while Juliana's son, Valerio, is uh, you know pretending to have polio, wakes up one morning and says, I can't walk, my legs don't work. And of course, Juliana panics and rushes and you know, gets a doctor and, and turns out he's been faking it the whole time. But you know, just like Anna in La Ventura, there wasn't actually a shark. Somebody, just, just a way to look for attention. But then uh, Juliana tells a story of this pre-adolescent girl on a faraway beach who just swims every day and then you know this ghost ship pulls into the cove and and then it leaves and then after that the, all the rocks are singing and it's uh, i mean clearly this fits into to Antonioni's schema where there's he's contrasting this like emotionally cold modern world with this sort of primitive life where things where people can just act naturally but I feel like there's a metaphor in that tale that I'm missing, and, and I'm hoping that your your takeaway, your your interpretation of this movie has something can, ties ties that fable into into it somehow. That's my hot take. I got okay. it for you. Okay, here's my hot Good. take on that scene. I think because it's right. It's this girl. She's at this pink sand beach. Everything is perfect, and and she's sort of swimming, whatever she wants. And then from afar, she sees a sailing ship. Like a nice, like in one of those old style and wooden masts, I mean, and and big sails. And from afar, she sees a sailing ship and she starts to swim towards it until she gets there and she realizes that no one's actually on it. And then the ship itself just sort of turns around and then just goes back out to sea. And she's left by herself, just not, you know, not understanding and then and then swimming back into the rocks where, as you said, they start to everything around her starts to sing in a voice that to me sounded like the Star Trek opening thing. <laughs> um, so, okay. So my, my hot take is that I kind of feel like this is like the, the sort of Eve re- rejecting the apple. The, the ship is the modern society and it comes it with, with majesty and, and promise. And then you get to it and it, it's just empty and pointless. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, so, you know, she, she, she chooses not to board it. She chooses not to get on and, and to take it, even though it seems to intrigue her so much. And then she just kind of goes back to her garden of Eden, as it were, uh, where she can kind of do what she wants. And, and once she returns, she has this realization that she's she's connected to everything. She's connected to nature and the planet. And th- there's like there's a regret, I think, that, that she's, she's lost something for having rejected this. But um, seems to me like a fantasy that Monica Vitti's character has for herself, that she wishes that she could go back. She wishes she could take her the sort of the knowledge that the, you know, the, the bite in the apple that she had taken and, and return it and reject it and just go back to the simplicity of, of not knowing and the simplicity of perfect nature and harmony. 
And this idea that's even more beautiful, it's it's even more perfect once you've seen the alternative, right. which is you know, this, this, this empty life of hers. I buy it. <laughs> I, to- I totally buy it. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. Red Desert, I think, if you want to see just, like, how many colors exist in, in like, scum, <laughs> you know, like, you, you never would have known it. And maybe half of them have been spray painted on by Antonioni, but it's it looks just stunning. <laughs> the blue of those glass bottles that are, you know, like, buoys, ocean buoys, like, the, the, I, I can't get that out of my head. That's like the most beautiful color. I love that that scene with the just the billowing black smoke, and then the this the characters in color and the whole world and the landscape just looking like it's in sepia. It's it's just like it's fantastic. I don't know. It's like the beauty of an oil slick in in crappy dirt or those wonderful um, phone lines. Oh yeah, the or no, not phone lines. They're to communicate with the aliens. The uh, yeah. the <laughs> the uh, the antenna. But uh, if you really want some colors, uh, you should take a trip to Swinging London. Antonioni's follow-up to Red Desert was another color film. Uh, English language went to London and made blow-up in uh, 1966. Chances are, if you've seen one Antonioni movie, it's probably this one. It was a huge hit, made a ton of money everywhere, which is um, impressive for such a puzzling movie, but there's just so much fashion and you know, mystery that never really gets solved, but it's enough of a mystery where it feels like there's a plot in this movie. You're sort of following it along to you know see what happens next, which is not really a sensation you get from many Antonioni films. This, this movie may be a good way into Antonioni for, for a lot of people, but it also is you know, one of his more pretentious films, I guess. It's very much about art and life. And, I mean, it comes back to some of the themes from La Note, and, and Thomas is a, is a fashion photographer, a very successful fashion photographer. Every young lady in, uh, in London wants to model for him. But he finds the, the fashion photography really tedious. He really just wants to capture, instead of this fake world of, of fashion, he wants to really capture something meaningful he's, he's wandering around in a park and takes a picture of this this couple who he thinks is behaving in a very natural uh, sort of romantic way where um, you know it's pretty clear that it's it's some kind of show he takes pictures of them against their will and and uh, the, the the woman involved played by Vanessa Redgrave uh, with with Monica Vitti hair clearly should have been Monica Vitti <laughs> Um, is so desperate to get the film back that he thinks so. There, there must be something in these photographs that, that that's important, that's real. And you think it's an affair? Yeah. Well, you don't know what it is. I mean, it seems like she's she's with a much older man, and um, when a dead body appears, you know, in a photograph, and perhaps in in Thomas's imagination or not in his imagination, it is this older man that that she's been frolicking around the park with. But I love this movie. It had actually been a really long time since I'd seen it, and uh, I was pleased to find out that it's every bit as wonderful as I remember it being. Me too. I, I hadn't seen this in ages. I do remember thinking that it was more pretentious, <laughs> but it might just be because it's full of mimes. There's mm-hmm. a whole mime troupe that that opens and closes the film. But it, I kind of I love I love it. 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a problem with pretension, but I can also relate to leveling that criticism at movies that I love. Uh, David Hemmings is, is sort of based off of a, a David Bailey type um, fashion photographer who, if you don't recognize the name, if you Google him, you'll you'll immediately recognize his work. He's an awesome photographer and very iconic and very 60s iconic specifically. And I love the clothing that they're putting everyone in, which looks like Pierre Cardin and Gene Shrimpton and Twiggy uh, were modeling back in the day. All of this like Lucite walls and women wearing like space age crazy outfits that no one in their right mind would ever be able to functionally wear anywhere uh, and just looking fantastic. I mean, like it captures that very mid-century look to it. But then you turn around and you have Antonioni's London which is so the opposite and very purposefully because, again, he came out with the spray paint can and he spray painted this time like buildings, trees, uh, literally like he, he turned this one section of London into his set and just, you know, put a wash over entire buildings like he, he just went nuts because he could. And quite frankly, it looks fantastic. <laughs> this movie, like all the colors, when they pop, they're, they're, they completely pop. And when he's out on the street, when David Hemmings is out on the street, you do get this sense of the, the beautiful life of the, the swinging 60s uh, versus the reality that they're not acknowledging and they're not living in. You know, there's so many, there are pretentious beats to this, but I can't call it pretentious because there's just so much that's just fascinating or just so well done. I, I, there's no pretension. He, he, Antonio committed. <laughs> but um, I think I, I do, I do wonder why this was such a hit. I, it kind of mystifies me, but I just, I think maybe because there's a, a very clear twist that, you know, he takes these photos and then he's blowing them up. Ha ha. Looking at these and he starts to see something sinister. He sees a, a figure in the background and suddenly he's realizing that this wasn't an affair. This was a, a murder plot. And he doesn't even care so much that it was. He's so excited. Oh, I stopped a murder until he realizes that actually he 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 photographed the entire murder. And with the last photo having the body in the background that he didn't even notice. And, uh... You know, there's just so much, there's so much to this time around kind of felt almost like proto clockwork orange to me. <laughs> it like that this felt almost like a commentary on the, the sort of um, ever present violence, uh, you know, tourism and, and voyeurism that it lurks within modern society. It's almost like that scene from Le Clisse with, uh, you know, the, the car accident, but for two hours. <laughs> well, there's a very clear quote directly from uh, blow up in uh, in clockwork orange the well first of all the number one reason this movie was a hit was sex i mean it's you know the raciest thing that ever got on the big screen in 1966 david hemmings has an orgy with two teenage girls in his uh, in a studio jane birkin being one of them jane birkin and the other one and i don't have her name but she plays um Jillian Hills. She's the blonde lollipop girl in the Clockwork Orange who Alex has an orgy with. And she's the woman that sings the Zooby Zooby Zoo song made famous by Mad Men. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, but yeah, and also Vanessa Redgrave spends about two thirds of her time in the movie with no shirt on. I mean, she, you know, she's carefully covered herself up with her arms, but still, there's a lot to leer at in this movie, and I 
think that's probably the number one reason it was a hit, and just this idea that uh, you know the swinging London is this hedonistic place. You can even interpret this movie as this is Thomas's fantasy that he is the the guy that you see emerging from the homeless shelter, and you know sort of cuts to him like taking off his crummy clothes and, and taking this 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 crazy photo session with Verushka. It, it, it's very easily interpretable as as like. This is this is every man's fantasy. Like every every schlub on the street, this is what they this is what they want to be. They want to be this guy. I would argue that someone who who interpret and, and I I'm not arguing with you because I actually 100% agree. It's like very yes. I'm I'm sure that 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 all of that was exactly why this was a hit. But I would I would argue that someone who interpreted this film that way was is really missing the point. I think that you know that Thomas is. He's such an awful jerk. Even the orgy is like, it's incredibly questionable. He's in the middle of what he thinks is solving or preventing a murder. And these two teenage girls that may or may not be underage, you know, wander in because they know he's, oh, you're a photographer, take our photo. And he immediately tricks them into having sex with him. Total manipulation and forcing these two to, to sort of experience something that they're not saying no to, but... It's because of the power uh, dynamics between him and them. And he basically says, we'll do this and I'll and I'll take your photos. And then after this orgy happens, they're like, well, why don't you want to take our photos? And he's like, I'm busy. Get out of here. Well, yeah, I mean, this is once again, I'm not sure we've mentioned it yet, but in every one of Antonioni's movies, sex solely exists as a distraction from the more important things. Like, you know, people are bored, so they have sex or David Hemmings is, is like really onto something with these these photographs that he keeps blowing up and he knows he's got something there but then these girls come and then sex and it's like he's he's able to to you know totally forget about this thing that he's like sweating and like working so hard to figure out and he's just like he drops it like that when these girls show up just and you know to entertain himself with a with a little bit of an orgy um right for a while and then you know it's right back into you know this his his obsessive uh you know solving of this mystery and it's, he does the same thing to uh, Vanessa Redgrave. He's realizing that he's onto something and his only thought is to profit off of it in some way, either artistically or then physically. I mean, like he tries to seduce her too. I mean, he gets her topless at least. So he's continually living within this sort of, uh, this low level of creeping violence. <laughs> I love the concert scene. I love that scene too. Why do people hate that Yardbird scene? I don't know. I think that's amazing. It's so perfect. And it ties completely into that. Shit goes to hell. <laughs> <laughs> well but what's amazing is that they're all like standing like zombies this this music is playing and they're not like digging it the way kids are supposed to dig it and it's not until jeff back like busts the arm off his guitar and throws it into the crowd that they go crazy like they all jump on this this holy relic and thomas ends up with it and like he doesn't even know why he's so desperate to get this thing but kicking and and punching and and you know this violent scene just to get this piece of a guitar he looks at it again he's like why did i even care about getting this and he tosses it aside and it's such a it's such a great scene yeah it's pretty it's pretty damning i that's the other thing is like like this is this is a really interesting interpretation of swinging london to me because it, it doesn't feel like this isn't the dream of it this is like the the sort of uh, sinister reality of it which in some ways is even more sinister i think than than the truth but i i love it <laughs> Yeah. And then we just have to we have to talk about the ending because it's another iconic thing where, you know, Hemmings is, is out in the park again and he comes across that mime troupe who sees him and they pull over their little clown car and they all jump off and start to play tennis. 
and they're throwing a ball, but there is no ball, and they're all it's because it's a mime troupe, and he's sitting there watching, and then you know they sort of mime that the ball has gone over the fence and it lands near him, and they're telling him like bring the ball, and there's nothing there, and yet he he feels strangely drawn to picking up this fake ball and throwing it back to them. And, the, you know, it sort of ends with him, his expression kind of changing and having a realization. And uh, it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure there's an exact interpretation of what that's supposed to mean. I mean, it's, you know, how fantasies can be as real as reality or hanging your life on, a, on an illusion is as valid or, or oh, I don't know. <laughs> I can't finish that sentence. I feel like it's two things. It's everything. It's all things. Uh, I, I kind of see it as, I mean, I see the whole movie primarily as a commentary on art and the nature of artists, like you said earlier, and, and this sort of need to be seen and to be watched, that his control, which is one thing that he's fighting for throughout the entire film, is for control and he's in power. And it gets, and then when everything gets taken from him is the only time where, where he starts to realize that the, his control over his art is meaningless unless he has the audience to receive it. So here he took all these brilliant photos and he solved a murder and he has all the proof. But if it doesn't, if the proof is gone, if there's nothing in, and no one's there to, to, to acknowledge it, it's, it doesn't exist, you know, was it ever really here? And so I think that sort of this commentary on the fact that you can be on top of the world as a fashion photographer and get all the, the chicks you want and, and solve murders and be a superhero, but the audience is fickle and uh, ever-changing. And so, you know, one day you're up, the next day you're down kind of thing. It's also maybe in part the shedding of ego and, and the sort of like clicking into super ego. It's like re realizing, as you said, that everything that you thought was was reality is actually it's not black and white. It's shades of gray. I think is the maybe the broader meaning beyond art. But I love it either way. Yeah. But then uh, Antonioni made a second English language movie a follow-up to Blow Up. Uh, he, he went over to America and he made Zabriskie Point. Teenagers are sometimes so freaked out they cannot sit on straight class. Love it or hate it, it's... Uh, Bart loves it. You, <laughs> you definitely can't call it one of Antonioni's greatest successes. It's hard to even know where to where to go with this. I mean, this is a movie that um, I kept putting it off because it has such a horrible reputation. <laughs> and I kept hearing that this was like the worst movie ever. And I kept hearing that, oh, it's the most underrated movie. And it was fantastic. I even saw that Orson Welles' Other Side of the Wind movie which is in, in a lot of ways and i can now i even see it even more i i knew it was a sort of a satire on zabriskie point and now of watching zabriskie point i'm like oh yeah no like like there's like beat for beat remaking this exact movie or or very clearly riffing on it so it was it was interesting to finally see it and i i don't spoiler i don't think it's a failure i i but i don't think it's great either and i don't think it's really underrated genius <laughs> <laughs> He definitely turns his back on a lot of the stuff he does best with this movie. 
the emotions are really artificial. It's not even anal an analysis of, of emotions, really. I mean, I guess I should sum up the plot. It starts with a um, meeting of, of student radicals, and actually Kathleen Cleaver gets to make a little bit of a speech in that in that opening scene, and it's a, you know... And Eldridge Cleaver, who we saw in Agnes Varda's Black Panther documentary. yeah. Definitely didn't remember that, that she was in it when I saw this before. Um, it's, it's a discussion of, of how to be a revolutionary, and our hero, Mark, Mark Frechette, gets up and leaves saying, oh, this is it's all talk. Oh, I'm, I'm willing to die for something I believe in, but this is just boring. And uh... and meanwhile, you have Daria, who is uh, Daria Halpern. She works for like a real estate office, and she has hair down below her butt, hippie type. And she sort of like up and leaves work. Like she's told that she's going to meet her boss in Phoenix, and she decides to drive there and take like a stop on the way out to some commune that ends up being just like a bunch of really creepy like lost children <laughs> and and mark then um hijacks an airplane as you do he gets involved he, they, they they think he's shooting a cop because he has kind of gets caught up in a shootout between the black panthers and the cops but he's not actually part of this he just sort of is witness to it and um then the cops think he runs from the scene so he gets fingered as as being the the one who shot a cop which i honestly thought maybe he did yeah it's a little unclear he claims he didn't multiple times but i kind of think he did he then hijacks an airplane and then starts to just buzz Daria's car for no reason, like North by Northwest style. And uh, the two of them meet cute, you know. <laughs> that's how you met your wife, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in a, in a pink airplane <laughs> that I was flying. And then they end up at Zabriskie Point, which is a real point in Death Valley, where, where there's all these sort of sand dunes and, and rock formations. And uh, I don't know, that's kind of it. You kind of follow these two around as they just sort of loaf a bit they sort of fall in love and then mark's kind of like i gotta go back babe i got real important shit to do and they paint a giant penis and boobs on the plane and then they send him back to la he's looking for danger he says as much he's like looking to to, to start shit he lands the plane he gets shot by all the cops which is based on a real incident that actually was what inspired antonioni to make this movie to begin with apparently he wanted to make a movie based around this incident where some some kid did stole a plane and when he landed the plane he got murdered for it which is pretty horrific. My problem with this movie is that he cast Mark Frechette and Daria Halperin non-actors. Yeah, the <laughs> the biggest names in Hollywood. <laughs> they they're not good. And I can kind of see it because they have this very like perfect end of 60s um faces. Well, this does count as a 60s movie. It was shot in the 60s and it was just a delayed release that made it come out in February of 1970, but it was, you know, it'd been in production for like 3 years. So, I think it counts as a as a 60s movie and it's definitely about the 60s. Yeah. And and yeah, and they're perfect beautiful 60s kids they're so they have nothing going for them i mean mark for i was looking him up he basically everyone everything that he is in this movie is who he was in real life he was just like a kind of a shithead that wandered <laughs> and uh you know was too cool for everything he ended up trying to rob a bank he got sent to jail for it and then he died in jail from a weightlifting accident so it was like and he died at like i don't know like in his 30s or something ridiculous 27 yeah you see this movie and you're like yeah that's how that guy's gonna die you know it's like if he wasn't shot by for a plane and then daria Halpern 
like, I mean, she's a bit better than him in some ways, but she has nothing to work with and she's not an actress, so she can't emote the way that someone like Monica Vitti can. You know, you don't get anything from her face. <laughs> just to be honest, you, she just doesn't, she doesn't convey anything. There's just like an emptiness. And I think she went on to marry Dennis Hopper, which to me seems very on brand. I think it was a miscalculation. And I've always sort of admired that it's a movie about the, the tension between the, the generations, the you know the kids versus the, the adults and restlessness of youth versus the like status quo of adults. And I think the idea is to show that both sides are equally empty, but uh, at least the kids are like acting on instinct. And they, I think they fit into this like, Antonioni model of this idealized animalistic behavior that is anti-civilization anti-society like they're they're just trying to like shake shit up they're trying to like change everything these kids have sort of taken it upon themselves to enact this fantasy that Antonioni has created in all of his other movies is sort of destroy civilization get back to the basics where you go into the desert and take off all your clothes and and have sex with uh, a bunch of other naked couples and and just or you, you have know. sex so good that you turn into a dozen naked couples <laughs> Yeah, they're all so dirty that they all just look. And I think that's part of the point, that it's, you know, they're all just sort of clones of each other. It's it's very cynical, and I think that's part of the problem. There's nobody to connect to in this movie. But I think his view of the of the kids is, is you know, just as cynical as, of his, as his view of the adults in this movie. And that's part of what I really like about it. Like, everybody is sort of like the mannequins in that uh, in that amazing ad for for sunny dunes sunny dunes you know that the real estate company that that daria works for is trying to create in uh phoenix and uh it's just you know these empty human beings are just kind of going through the motions and and uh i dig it i don't think it it's totally successful but i i see what he's going for and i i, I definitely appreciate a lot of moments in this movie I think that, you know, and Antonioni got in a ton of trouble. <laughs> and this movie was a, a major flop because it got shredded by by everyone. Actually, probably not so much the viewers, but the critics uh, hated them. I, even the government got involved with that orgy scene because there were all these rumors that he wanted thousands of people all having sex at the same time. <laughs> and, you know, it ended up not, that definitely didn't happen. And even then, like, they were, like, trying to nail him on um, transporting women across state lines so they could arrest him for staging this simulated sex scene. But I think that like the problem is that it's just everything in this movie is just embarrassing as hell. But as you said, it, there's a lot to be embarrassed by in, in America. <laughs> <laughs> In this, in the late 60s, I mean, the point of genius for him to have this opening with the Black Panthers because uh, Kathleen Cleaver sounds so intelligent and so well-spoken and you have all these lame white kids who are like, well, how can we be white revolutionaries? And, and she's like, you got to break the system. And they're like, well, it treats me really well. I don't think it's fair. It's like this typical dialogue that you, well, that's still going on, quite frankly, but... It's embarrassing, and, and and it's embarrassing because, uh, as you said, everyone who's who's older is a phony jerk who has no interest in these kids that are all suffering down on the streets, and then the kids on the streets don't want to help each other because they're worried because maybe they won't be able to grow up to be a phony jerk. <laughs> then you even have two hippies that are just doing it for themselves, and, like, they're so shallow and terrible. Then to have a foreigner come into this country 
and telling me that my country is stupid. Apparently, he wanted to end this with an airplane writing out fuck America in the sky. (laughs) (laughs) I never heard that. (laughs) And it got cut because they were like, you're absolutely not letting this happen, which is then why he had to make this house explosion I don't think it's embarrassing because Antonioni is is like an evil foreigner pointing a finger of judgment at America as much as it's embarrassing because America is embarrassing. <laughs> and I don't think that that was his creation. And I also feel like he was kind of just the messenger with that. I don't know even that he thought more harshly of America, but I feel like his message gets really lost in the fact that he hired these two non-actors because if they were more sympathetic, this movie would be so different. Hmm. And and the only thing I liked really about this movie, the only scene that I really appreciated was that final scene where the house gets blown up because it feels passionate and it feels sympathetic and real. And if you don't even know this, this is like what's kind of known about Zabriskie Point is this, um, there's this gorgeous mid-century house wrapped around rocks, you know, expensive, fancy place. Then Daria has this fantasy that the entire house just explodes. Over and over and over again. Yeah, and it's all in slow motion to Pink Floyd. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, it's incredible to look at. Yeah, and, it, and they show you the house from like several different angles exploding which was a model. They didn't really explode the house. And then they show you symbols of capitalism being exploded. So it's like a really fancy lobster dinner or like a rack of designer clothing. The the loaf of Wonder Bread that's flying through the air. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, honestly, Wonder Bread is the symbol (laughs) of America. But yeah, I mean, like that was so good because it it got some real shit through, you know? And and then suddenly that's when I liked Daria. You know, she feels a little bit better after she imagines all of that happening. And then the movie ends and you're like, oh, man, I would want (laughs) now I wanted to see this movie, you know, and it's over. It's crazy that it took five writers to create this movie because, you know, in a body of work where where none of the movies have much going on, this movie has the least going on like there there are very few things that actually happen in this movie. And it took five writers, including Sam Shepard and um, who was probably high as a kite when he was doing this. Uh, Claire Peplow, who was uh, most famous as Bertolucci's wife and co-writer, and Tonino Guerra, who has been Antonioni's co-writer on all of his 60s movies. And I think that is the turn that Antonioni made in 1960 with La Ventura, at least partially, has to be because of Tonino Guerra. I have to believe like he's the only consistent element in these movies other than Antonioni. And I think that he must have been the writer who gave Antonioni the confidence to just slow things down and analyze moment by moment and take out extraneous plot and just get at the hearts of these characters that get at the or, or, you know, lack of hearts of these characters and fill in the gaps with, uh, you know, philosophical questions and, and, uh, you know, existential longing and, and, uh, Tonino Guerra actually went on to work with like some of the the great slow cinema directors like Tarkovsky and Angelopoulos, and he actually worked with uh, Elio Petri a bit too on a few of his movies. And we're actually doing an Antonioni episode right now because we're going to do Petri, and we decided, well, can we really do a lesser known figure like Petri without doing Antonioni first? So, but uh, maybe I should have saved this for the conclusion. Although maybe we don't have much else to say about. Zabriskie point anyway but well it's uh, gonna the podcast gonna explode at the end so we gotta get all this in (laughs) 
in my research into Antonioni for this episode, I feel like Tonino Guerra definitely deserves a little more research and that, that he probably has a lot to do with invention of a new cinematic language that, uh, that Antonioni was responsible for in the 60s. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> what else can we say about Antonioni? I have a little quote here that was taken from an interview with him back in the 60s that I thought was really interesting and I thought I thought pretty enlightening just about Antonioni as a, a director and and really after everything that we've just said here so I think like I think we got it like <laughs> I think we understand Antonioni pretty well. He essentially says that he says I don't make films for the audience not out of disrespect for them but I'm neither the intellectual that um, p- people think I am, and I'm not locked in some ivory tower either. And I think films should be made not for the audience and, and not to, to make money or to gain popularity. Uh, and he thinks that they should be made um, to be as good as they can be. And this is the best way to, to, be, to work and to be sincere. You know, Antonioni in general, I think he's really intriguing because he's one of the few directors that's like super willing to discuss in depth why he did something. (laughs) And there's actually a great, I found a great article that was in the New York Times from 1970, February 22nd, 1970, where it says Antonioni defends the brisky point because it got so slaughtered (laughs) by all of the, um, the reviewers. And number one, this article opens up with Mamma Mia!, which I think is fantastic. And there's a bunch of like zingers at him being Italian, even though then they like quote him and they say, he says in urgent and fluent English. <laughs> but, um, you know, he basically goes on for, for like paragraphs explaining what the point of Zabriskie point was, which I, I just think is fascinating because I feel like you typically, what you get is, is directors that are like, well, you don't get it, and they they huff away, or you know they don't want to talk about it because they feel like they don't want to influence something, or you know they're just I'm just the messenger man. Like like they are more pretentious, and I feel like Antonioni was very much willing, and and I, I I'm really definitely against um, any interpretation of Antonioni being pretentious, whether you like him or not. That's my thing. Going back to right and wrong, like you don't have to love him the way that that Bart and I understand him. But you, uh, you know, you, I don't think you can call him pretentious. I really don't. And he sure, I mean, he sure flirts with it in Zabriskie Point. <laughs> no more than any of his other movies. But I think, again, that, that he then, like, took to the New York Times to sit there and explain point by point why he included really specific scenes in, in like, that's not pretense. You know, that that's like a full-on, you know, this this guy thought this out. He had something to say, whether or not you agreed with it or whether or not it was he, he did it um, effectually. Is, is totally up to, to interpretation, but I don't know. I think Antonioni's genius. I think that, you know, this was, he's definitely like a highlight of the 60s for me. It's, I mean, for me, it's really just a mood. He creates, you know, this sense of place and this, you know, just this atmosphere that I just want to soak up. That's a really a huge part of it for me. I just, how can you qualify that as something that makes a good film or a bad film? I mean, either you respond to that mood or you don't respond to that mood. And um, I don't know. I, I um, movies are 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 a fantasy land, and I, I think we watch movies so to be you know, transported, to be taken away. And it's you know some things are going to transport some people. You know, people who want to live in a James Bond world can you know help yourself. Go go live in. Go live in a James Bond world. I'd rather live in this world of depressed 
rich women who, uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes forget themselves and, and uh, you know, display these moments of, of goofiness and joy and then catch themselves uh, being happy and, and uh, you know, retreat back into depression. And that's, that's the world I want to live in for two hours. And, and Antonioni does Amen. it. Amen. <laughs> Antonioni does it for me. So there's a great quote in The Eclipse. Uh, where Le Eclisse, where, where um, Monica Vitti's like, Vorrei non amarti, o amarti molto meglio. She's like, you know, saying like, I wish I didn't love you, or I wish I loved you much more. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's like, that's like that perfect in-between, you know, it's like that's where Antonioni lives and thrives is like in this, like this complete contradiction and of, you know, desire and, and want and need and, and fear and all of that stuff. So it's like, yeah, like you go... You go womanize, and Bart and I are going to go cry in this corner, and we're going to love it. Yeah. Yeah, so next week we're going to do Antonioni all over again. Watch all these movies <laughs> yeah. one more time. Listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.